Why should it be said among their peoples, where is their God? I speak to you today in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Where is the Christian God? In the earthquakes of Turkey, in the war of Ukraine, in the alcohol psychosis of an uncle, in the cancer report of a friend or a loved one? Should it be said among the peoples, where is their God? If we ask where is their God today, surely some of us would want to point to the amazing revival at Asbury University in Wilmore. A friend of mine posted that some prominent ministers and gospel singers have been reaching out to the university asking if they could lend their services to this revival, and yet the university is politely but firmly telling them, you can come like anyone else. You can find a seat at the back, join us. You're welcome to worship with us, but we don't want the agendas or the programs or the showboating. So where is their God? In Wilmore, he is in the place of humility. In the season of Lent, we too are called to go to the place of humility. And this place is nowhere other than in the embrace of the one who calls us. He stands before you today, before me, and he has a simple invitation. Return to me. But what does that phrase mean? It means that we have turned away. It means that we have departed from a relationship. It means that we have turned our backs on God. Repentance, then, is the turn back. It is the turn back to the one, the very one who says, return to me. It's a simple truth. But again, note that the text of Joel this evening does not say first return to fasting or almsgiving or mourning or assembling. It does not say these things first. First, it simply starts with return to me, God says. And yet neither does it say that return to me has no implications for our embodied and corporate lives. It holds those two things together. I mean, have you ever thought about the gospel reading where it says, don't mark yourself, and then that's exactly what we're going to do in a moment with ashes. It's about integrity between the external and the internal which starts with return to me, God says. The one who calls forth return to me also clarifies that the evidential marker of the return first is a changed heart, which does bear fruit in various ways. But first, rend your hearts and not your garments. And yet, in fact, God, through the prophet Joel, will sketch various means to return to him wholeheartedly with fasting to help us hunger for him. We fast during Lent to learn how to feast on God. With weeping, 
out of contrition for our sins and the sins of the world, seeking to allow him to bring good out of evil through a medicine of mercy that is so much more potent than our illness. With mourning, for the many opportunities and graces lost for the way that sin wrecks our relationship and world and conscious that as Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount, those who mourn will be comforted. To bring offerings and libations, the text says, which I think is a prophecy to the self-offering of Jesus's body and blood in the Eucharist together with our own self-offering at the altar and in the communities where we serve to gather the people, to notify the congregation, to assemble the elders, to gather the children, Joel says, all external markers that are rooted in the return and the changed heart. You see, conversion is not meant to be a, a solo or individualistic process, but an ecclesial one, a corporate return even to have the bridegroom and the bride leave the honeymoon suite, Joel says, indicating that there is a love that's greater involved even than the most fresh experiences of human love because human marriage is meant, as Scripture puts forth, to image forth God's plan for the maker to marry his creation, to heed and live the spousal message of Hosea and Isaiah, return to me in this sense, calls back the unfaithful into the marriage bed. This is what it means to return to the Lord with our whole heart, with our stomachs, the text seems to say, with tears, with pierced hearts, with sacrifice, with others, with spousal commitment and love that reflects the nuptial mystery of salvation between Christ and his church. But we must be brutally honest. Because even these patterns that we seek to do in Lent, we will not do wholeheartedly. You see, Lent exists to lead us to Holy Week, when we can nail even our fasting failures to the cross. Holy Week takes us to the resurrection, when death is defeated and the words ashes to ashes and dust to dust are no longer final but we are not there yet. Here we are on Ash Wednesday. We are only at the beginning of Lent because resurrection revival starts with repentance. Renewal begins with a surrender to grace, who in the Messiah says personally to you and to me, return. And he can call forth this turn to him because he has turned to us. And on that turn, all of human history swings. The one who knew no sin, Paul says, became sin so that we might become what he is, the righteousness of God. The Episcopal priest and preacher Fleming Rutledge wrote a wonderful book entitled The Crucifixion. I cannot recommend it more highly. And in this magnum opus, Rutledge affirms that it's the mode of Jesus's death that matters just as much as the death itself, the way in which he 
dies. Her basic thesis is that Jesus' death by crucifixion was the only mode of death that could possibly match the desperate situation humans find themselves in under sin. And so she uses Paul's conception of sin, capital S, sin, as a a debilitating power that colludes with the law and with death to keep humans enslaved. And so in order to liberate us from this slavery to sin and death, Jesus, fully divine and fully human, had to enter into our slavery. And the only way to do that, the best way to do that, was to take on the kind of death reserved for slaves in Roman society. She writes, Jesus' situation under the harsh judgment of Rome was analogous to our situation under sin. He was condemned. He was rendered helpless and powerless. He was stripped of his humanity. He was reduced to the status of a beast, declared unfit to live and deserving of a death proper to slaves. That is what happened on the cross. She concludes, the Son of God gave himself up to be enslaved by sin, condemned by the law, and subject to death. You see, the one who had no sin was made to be sin, made to be like us in our condition. Paul says as well in the Christ hymn of Philippians 2 that though he was in the form of God, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave. He took on the form of a slave, literally on the cross, identifying completely with us in the enslavement of sin and death to the point that in that moment, he exchanged divinity for godlessness. And no wonder he cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's, of course, a quote from Psalm 22, and it is the cry of our condition as well. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Cried by human hearts through history and time and place. So where is their God? He is crying out for us to cry to him. He is the only God who bleeds for his creation. The one who knew no sin literally became sin for us. Charles Wesley's great hymn, and can it be, captures this imagery so well, and it reads, Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. So, where is their God? He's born in a manger. He's baptized by John the Baptist. He's healing the ear of the one who came to take him. He's going to the wilderness to be tempted. He's standing with the lowly and the despised. He's climbing up his cross. He's preparing to have his arms stretched wide open for you and for me so that we might come within the reach of his saving embrace. Do you see him? Do you hear him? He says again and again and again, return to me, return to me, return to me and follow me to my cross.